Case file number 6.07. Indistinct signals. Observed by Agent Crenshaw. Agent Crenshaw. Still working on this Gibson thing. No, Chief. Y you gotta give me more time. Have you even listened to the recordings? It's like an encyclopedia of this hacker stuff. One of them just keeps going on and on about everything that ever went wrong on the internet. No. Nobody knows this kind of crap. He's obviously up to no good. Yeah, the one called Hackalope. No. How is it not illegal? The information is dangerous. Oh, and, and the other one. The other one. Y Ymir. He's always going on about everything the CIA and FBI did wrong. All the wiretap stuff, all the crazy projects. How does he know? We already know he's infiltrated NASA, and I am this close to catching him skipping leg day. Now just ask yourself, Chief, what would J. Edgar Hoover do? Come, Chief, all I need is more time. Sooner or later they're going to slip up and I will catch them. Hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subdirector in the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. So I was thinking uh, for today's episode, I'm going to go back in time a little bit. Time warp sounds. You're going to borrow my black hat time machine? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and we're going back to between 2007 2008. We're going to be talking about satellites again today. Cool. And so there were two satellites back then that were, um, quote unquote, interfered with. Mm -hmm. I say interfered with. There's still a lot of speculation as to what really happened or like who was behind it, if anything was really done. Sure. So the claim was made back in uh, 2011 when a draft paper was written up that was prepared for the U.S. China Economic and Security Revision or Review Commission. Mm -hmm. It stated that incidents involving Landsat 7 and Terra AM1 they're both Earth observation systems were targeted through uh, ground stations located up in Norway and uh, Svalbard, to be exact. Oh, wow. Yeah. Trivia, do you, do you know where Svalbard is? Roughly, because the oldest set of chess pieces known to exist were found in Trondheim, I believe it was, which is in the Svalbard uh, Catholic Diocese, like oh, okay. that region. And so just because of my obscure interest in chess, uh, I happen to know roughly where Svalbard is. So I know where Svalbard is because I was told I have to go there at some point. And so I happened to, when I was in Iceland, look up at a map at an Airbnb I was staying at. And I was like, holy crap, that is really high up there in the Arctic Circle. And the stories that I've heard of it is that the facility in question leaves all of the doors unlocked and you have to go outside with a buddy system uh, with one person at least has a rifle because the polar bears so basically you don't need locks on your doors because there's polar bears yeah exactly it's like uh, <laughs> i think gnome alaska is the same thing where like people uh usually keep the doors unlocked because someone might need to run in because the polar bear is chasing them yes but burglars well they get eaten <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly the, the report in question it highlighted risks that could have been posed had the breaches occurred on more sensitive satellites, and it pointed mm -hmm. to China as being the culprit behind all of this. And I looked up a few different articles. I wonder, I mean, maybe you'll get into this, but do you think it was like a, um, a sea-based signal station? Because uh, I can't imagine that they were able to establish a real ground station in Norway that China was able to do that. 
No, no. I, I, basically, what they they kind of pointed was that most satellite operations, especially like NASA, is it is a global effort. Um, so mm-hmm. there's a lot of like internet traffic that goes on. There's a lot of stations that we communicate with in other countries, and that tends to raise the hairs on the back of um, security folks next. Yes. It, it rightfully so, but it is also, you know, there's this kind of this, the diplomacy and all the uh, international relations and everything between governments. And then to the side of that is the scientists. And so you will have like, even though like there will be hostilities between two countries, the scientists will still kind of try to work together because, you know, they're not, engaging in that yeah. warfare it's anything. a much more collegial atmosphere um, yeah yeah I, yeah i could get that and i know that when i've talked to folks about some of this research-based aerospace stuff you and a few other people it's they're like why do we, we need security mm-hmm. yeah yeah that, it, that's like the um the give and take too in a lot of this is that like okay we need to secure this but also like we have people in Russia that need this data. We have people like, you know, in the Middle East that need this data. So there's, you know, like, how do we get it to them, but also keep ourselves safe from, you know, uh, possible threats out there. It's easy when everybody needs base, when you're okay with everybody having access to everything, but mm. that CIA triangle still does work um, yes. because you need integrity and availability. And for that, just having access control and some kind of integrity system, code management, system version control type systems are really great for that kind of thing like you still aren't constraining access the confidential you're not the confidentiality leg is not doing any work but at least the integrity side is and integrity and availability at least in this case of hey did stuff get corrupted is intertwined yeah Um, but it's very easy to as we've seen with just about everything feature sell software uh, security doesn't sell software. People are looking for what they're going to use first and security only when it's a problem. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So th- this article that I found uh, was written by the BBC and in it, they questioned three security experts, um, but did not give their names in the article for some reason. <laughs> Gee, I wonder. Uh... <laughs> yeah. Um, the one one person that they uh, uh, questioned, he remarked that uh, any security problem that had occurred was most likely due to negligence on the designers and operators. And referred to the story coming out as being nothing more than just someone getting temporary access to a remote computer that steers a satellite dish. Um, in this case, Svalbard, you know, someone was able to get something on that system or remote into that system and uh, send some garbage up to the satellite. Um, most of these stations, they only forward on messages uh, to and from the satellites as they orbit the Earth. Mm-hmm. And the security of the spacecraft itself doesn't rely solely on the security of any just one remote uh, dish antenna. Um mm-hmm. You know, logistically, if you jammed up or disrupted the signal from one ground station from being able to talk to the satellite, uh, you wouldn't see much of an issue. But if you start doing that, you know, from multiple satellites, you can't make its passes, you can't send certain things. Now you're talking about, you know, kind of using up a little more fuel than was expected for the mission life and, you know, other stuff like that. You can't turn your satellite, everything. Well, that was the thing that our mutual friend that does some some classified satellite work that when I was talking to them about possible security stuff uh because you had got me thinking about it at uh from one of these defcon things one of the immediate things i was talking about is like if you can send a signal and you can basically lock it so that it do some kind of denial of service that'll basically make it only listen during the window where your pirated ground station is available mm-hmm. you can ransom the satellite yeah 
You can just say, it will not listen to your commands until I tell it so. $10 million, please. Because that satellite's going to cost you less. It's going to cost you more to launch another one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And to their benefit and the detriment, a lot of these are pretty dumb. Um, And I'll talk about that further on uh, when I reference one of the DEF CON talks I went to uh, this past uh, spring. Sure. But Landsat, if people aren't familiar with what Landsat does or Terra does, um, they're both Earth imaging satellites. And so obviously there's not much to gain really when it comes into this. I know that, and it's just probably an article I read somewhere, but satellite imagery is actually really important for um, agriculture in America, that they use it, they live and die by the satellite imagery that they get. Corrupting that, you know, denying service on that would be a non-trivial thing. Yeah, exactly. That's not, that's not classified stuff. That's just regular Earth imaging that NASA does. In fact, I think their article I read was something about being there being some kind of defunding of NASA related to anything related to uh, um, climate change. Yes. And this was, wait a minute, <laughs> there are farmers in Idaho that need this. Yeah, yeah, there was that. There was also um, the, uh, you're not allowed to look at this because of climate change. And it was like, well... We can't turn it off. It's built into the system. Like it's always, it's always there. So they were like, well, just don't look at the monitor that shows it. Like, okay. Yeah, sure. Whatever. So that was, um, you know, the expert's opinion. Another mm-hmm. expert made mention that for years, the military and government agencies acted upon the assumption that all of their networks and data would be completely isolated and therefore hundred percent safe. Obviously that wasn't the case back in 2008 to 2012. And it's definitely not the case nowadays. I bring you back to Stuxnet. Because it was built to attack an air-gapped network. Yeah, exactly. And once the total isolation assumption was proven to be false, uh, the entire security model base clapped in on itself. Um, We're still kind of mucking around with that. You know, we've made a lot of efforts and strides in order to create more defense depth approach, but, you know, it's still still working. Mm -hmm. Beyond... Beyond that, though, there was a 2011 article on the Union of Concerned Scientists website by uh, Laura Grego. And she cited skepticism of China actually being behind the attack at all. Oh, really? According to her, her first thoughts were, you know, why would China hack a low-res satellite like Landsat 7 or Terra? Well, because as we've said before, some nation state actors, and China has a bit of this rep, they rattle every door and every window to see what they can do. And I think we've covered through some of the various Ukraine episodes and some of the stuff that I've read where I want to do more about the about Russia's uh, cyber attacks in Ukraine, it's incremental. Hey, we got this one. We proof of concept did this at a lower level and beginning to escalate um, kind of their attempts from there. So like the why would they do it thing is it doesn't hold a lot of water to me. No, no. Like reading the article, I was filled with a lot of kind of like, eh, like I don't know if I can feel this. Um, you know, there, there was a, a nice little history of both of the spacecrafts. Uh, Landsat has been keeping record of the Earth's surface since 1972. It observes, you know, vegetation, environmental changes to the ocean, land, atmosphere, and all that allows us to basically take photos and compare them for historical record to see what has changed. Terra itself is a U.S., Canada, and Japan, Japanese partnership and part of the EOS system. Um, has five instruments that measure vegetation, algae bloom occurrences in water, uh, can trace forest fires, lava flows, uh, provide information on changes in ice and snow coverage, and even pollution levels. 
One major thing is all this data is readily available to anyone that wants to listen, especially for Terra. Like you can connect to it and broadcast that data for you. Landsat also, you know, has a lot of that data publicly accessible, or you can request it. Mm-hmm. Now, in regards to the this incident in question, um, the NASA Public Affairs Officer Trent Pareto. Uh, wrote that no commands had actually been sent to the spacecraft, nor any data taken or any manipulation had occurred to that data. So Laura had you know, mentioned that it was very unclear what benefit was kind of gained. Um, she pointed out that Lancet 7 and Terra don't carry high-res imaging. You have been involved in these systems, and you've been to more talks than me about this, about security specifically in this, in this realm, and I know you've done a lot more reading. How confident are you in the logging systems that they use at the ground station and at the satellite level that they could be confident in that opinion? Do they have the logs to be basically be able to say that is what I'm, is what I'm asking. And I, and I'm like, I'm not leading, I'm not trying to lead the witness here. <laughs> I, I don't know, but I know that like, there's a difference when I'm doing analysis of one for an incident that I'm dealing with of the stuff that I don't know, because I don't have the information the logs of the telemetry doesn't exist and the stuff that I can reasonably say based on the confidence I have that I do have the logs. I don't know specifically like on the, the satellite side, all of the level one, like level two data that they're grabbing. I know like some of the missions that I've worked on, I've asked them like, Hey, what happens if someone, you know, were to intercept this file on the way to the server and tweak it. And their response is it would just be it'd come out the other end. It's gobbledygook and we throw it away and ask them to reset the file because like so you basically need to know what you're doing um in order to intercept the file change and everything like that as far as the data being taken that's possible um a lot of times you'll hear especially the engineers basically say like okay like you took the the level one data great like it's just a bunch of a bunch of data that we haven't processed yet and i guess what i was asking is if somebody sent a command that would say that would say move a dish or something like that, mm. oh okay, is like that locked? Command yeah, the command log, yeah. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily what data they got because at this point we're we're reasonably confident, at least in this case. They, I mean, they said no commands were sent. Mm-hmm. Is there a command log that is robust enough for us to answer that question? On some systems, I think. It- there might be like semi-decent logging. Um, I don't think it's very robust at <laughs> all. I know a lot of times they point out the fact that like, you know, when we've asked them like, okay, like what if what if someone were to sit down in your seat and just start like, you know, shooting shit up to the spacecraft, like what happens? And the response is usually that like, it's very particular what you can send. Um, mm-hmm. It's not like you can just like type, do a barrel roll um, into the sun and then, you know, watch sure. it go. So like one, you kind of, you need to be on the system that can do it. You need to know what you're doing. And every system has its own idiosyncrasies. And and that. so what we're saying is that it is very likely for a system like that, that if somebody's sending commands and they're doing a little bit of trial and error, if, the, if they're not an insider, that you're very likely to get at least a good set of weird or completely disallowed commands. You're going to see extra traffic in that log that is going to be atypical. It should be relatively easy to identify in analysis. Yeah, exactly. And then if the attitude or the state of the satellite were messed with, Mm -hmm. you would essentially know because the next thing you did wouldn't work right, wouldn't get the result that you would expect it to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
the if the if the telemetry didn't already tell you. Yeah, and the next time like it does a pass, like you're getting all the readings and everything, you'd sure. be able to look at it and go, wait a second. Right. No, I, completely I'm, off course. You know, I'm, I'm reasonably asking because like we're used to logs for everything. Yeah. Coming off of systems, this is the, you would need secondary indicators in, in some ways to deal to confirm your hypothesis that your logs are telling you what actually happened. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But, but it's conclusive. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry for the digression. <laughs> No, it's it's good information. It's one of those things too that's kind of a weird thing to wrap your head around when yeah you live in an environment where it's like log everything, like let's parse it through and everything like that. And they're kind of like, well, like we can log some of the stuff, but like there's inherent security in place for a lot of this. Mm -hmm. However, like going forward, payloads. You know, I'll, I'll talk about this too in a little bit. But this was a reference in the DefCon episode was that the person giving the talk was pointing out that payloads are probably going to be the next main focus point when attacking spacecraft. Because you already have signals, you already have ground stations. This has always been targeted. Mm -hmm. And especially as we get more prevalent with CubeSats, um, as you have a lot of these spacecraft being kind of like cookie cutter built um, with the mm -hmm. same software on each one, yes. now you're opening it up to, okay, well, like, it's not a not custom job. Bespoke. Yeah, not everything's bespoke anymore. And that everything has its own idiosyncrasies uh the dial gets turned down on that right yeah exactly you don't have to be an insider to not make any mistakes mm -hmm. eventually it converges to that point yeah and um lord grego i don't know if it's dr grego we didn't actually say that in the article uh or under her name so i don't know if she has a phd um so dr grego um <laughs> maybe she also referenced the fact that, like, like in terms of the high resolution imaging, fifteen meters of spatial resolution is what Landsat Seven and Terra uh, are mm -hmm. using. Um, and if you compare that to the GOI commercial imagery at the time, um, it was using 0.5 meter uh, resolution. Okay, so yeah. it was kind of like, well, and then obviously spy satellites are going to have even better imagery. But like, back mm -hmm. to your point, is that yes, my prime target would be a spy satellite. What if I can hit a NASA satellite and kind of test out a few things as to like, oh, does this work? Like, is this even like in the remote park for like getting to communicate to the satellite? And if it does, okay, shit, okay, awesome. Now we can like pull back, you know, try to tweak this a little bit more and then point it to a target we actually want. Well, also, I think that one thing that we should always keep in mind is just because you can't think of what somebody would do with it doesn't mean that they can't come up with something that was off your radar of what they could do with access. I mean, the example that comes to mind was in the Certificate Authorities episode, I talked about the Flamer attack, where they combined the fact that their Certificate Authority was also doing terminal service certificates with a hash collision to create signed software. It's like nobody anticipated that as the possible risk there. Right. I mean, like one thing is I don't know where spy satellites, Air Force satellites and everything orbit at. Mm -hmm. um, but if you were to able to command like a random NASA science vessel and steer it around just haphazardly, like, you know, you might hit something, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Could they just use it to break something else in orbit? We don't know. Space is a big place. Mm -hmm. But lots of but lots of stuff is in a relatively narrow band of orbit if i if i understand things correctly yeah yeah i mean you know there's a lot of science stuff just in leo and then there's a lot mm -hmm. of just space trash too 
Mm-hmm. And there's there's agencies that try to call the space trash and everything. Um, but I yeah. mean, just what was it like the past year? I think uh, China launched um, a satellite and then blew it up. I don't remember reading about this actually. Yeah, I don't know. I did have to look it up at some point. But yeah, so there's there's a lot of junk out there. Yeah, and so I, I just was poking around at that, and then that reminded me of the DefCon talk that I referenced that I saw um, back at DefCon 30. And that was a presentation game given by uh, Dr. James Paver entitled Exploring Radio Frequency Attacks in Outer Space. And he started the talk off in regards to the Viasat attack uh, that occurred during Russia's movement into the Ukraine. Um, it caused a disruption in a lot of the modems located in the Ukraine, but it quickly spread around uh, Europe to a lot of other countries and affected modems all over the place and also affected systems that relied on those. And he pointed out that 5,000 wind turbines in Germany were all affected. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it wasn't a jamming attack, but, you know, it was just kind of a a fun tidbit of like, hey, this is like how quickly this can kind of spread out of control. Yeah. So this was like a comm satellite. So like uplinked um, telecommunications stuff. Yeah. So like just a contagion thing, because as switching occurs, you're overloading other circuits, and maybe that's how they got the level of impact they got. Maybe it's just they just needed to touch that one satellite. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure. You know, but yeah, like it shows over the spillover and collateral damage that can come just from like you know mm-hmm. satellite attacks. And the laws in specific countries are basically meaningless because you know your satellites orbiting the world, so it crosses a lot of borders every day. Once you get uh high enough into low earth orbit it's admiralty law so it's the laws of the sea Mm -hmm. yeah exactly (laughs) and in his talk he cites uh through the history of satellite attacks um dating back to like just you know jamming in 1972 uh, between soviet russia and the u.s um basically like russia complained that u.s satellites were like pushing down propaganda to their citizens and they had every right to jam it when it was over their borders pretty sure that did happen um Oh, oh, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I know that they did it through ground stations through uh, uh, Radio America. Yeah. Um, so them using satellites is not not only they. I'm sure they did it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, like like I said, uh, signals and ground stations are the highest targets by far. In his talk, he shows a few charts, but you know, points out the payloads we'll probably see a lot more attention in the coming years. Um, mm-hmm. And the laws are all very murky at best as to when it's appropriate to jam a satellite that's passing over your borders. In 2018, Norway and Finland accused Russia of jamming signals from uh, Kola Peninsula during their uh, joint military exercises. Mm-hmm. And so the, the basic principle of how to do all this is just to be pretty loud and create noise so it messes up the math in question. If you're super loud and you can actually hijack the signal and present your own, uh, you can make a, make the legit signal basically just be background noise to your um, hijack signal. Okay, so well, I mean, this is jamming versus hijacking. Yeah, so, and I mean, it's they're intertwined because at mm-hmm. one point you're jamming, and then when you become so powerful, now you've hi- now you can hijack the system. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing is that you can. So I know that you can do that um, with. Uh, wireless access protection mm-hmm. you can jamming somebody's negotiation to wireless is much easier to do than presenting an access point you can do it a much greater range mm-hmm. um and like various other things that i know about signals is 
you can be not particularly loud if you're doing just the right thing to screw up the signal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's like, are they being loud or are they doing it in in very subtle ways that are maybe harder to detect? Yeah, and th- th- there's a lot of like open research uh, for sure. that. And he, he cites the uh, free space path loss equation, which is uh, just four multiplied by pi, multiplied by the distance of a wavelength squared. Mm-hmm. And that shows just how weaker a radio signal gets the further from the transmitter you are. Um, it's sure. the square of distance, so it's a dramatic drop-off. Uh, he kind of cited the fact that, you know, back in the day when we were all playing Pokemon Go, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I had an, something on my phone that allowed me to GPS spoof because it, it was... I think they changed this in Pokemon Go now, but it was it was crappy back then because like you could only get a sand shrew if you were like over in California, the Southwest. There were certain Pokemon that you can only get in Europe. A bunch of crap. So a lot of people would use uh, like radios and broadcast different GPS locations to their phone while they sat there and played. Thinking of this from your from from the '80s spy novel point of view, mm-hmm. somebody spoofing GPS signal would have been like just at the very age of plausible at this point. And now people are doing it to game video games. And that's hilarious. I, I remember um, going out with a few of our mutual friends um, when we were playing Pokemon Go. And like, I think I was in, like my character was in like Australia hunting down something like that. And I was like, <laughs> oh yeah, no, like I just, like, and I, I eventually broke the game. <laughs> like you just could never <laughs> figure out where I was anymore. <laughs> You've become unstuck in time. <laughs> and the the legit GPS power um, at a receiver is around mm-hmm. uh, 125.48 dBm, whereas mm-hmm. the radio on your bench is at 26.41 dBm. So, you know, like it doesn't take much to kind of interfere with GPS. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to rocket launches, how, how can we interfere with GPS there is one mm-hmm. major point of this talk. A lot of launches um, nowadays are launching with assets from multiple countries and organizations. I made reference to CubeSats. I think I've talked about them in the past. Um, mm-hmm. You know, where they just get packed in little pea pods. Um, there's a launcher. They just plump you out in space. And so what if one of them, because, you know, you might have a rocket go up with CubeSats from like Russia, the, Iran, you know, all these different organizations and everything. So what happens if one of them is malicious and puts a CubeSat on the rocket to disrupt the GPS signal to the rocket? Mm-hmm. And there are, there are rules um, that he cites in his talk of how CubeSats should uh, look and behave. Uh, one being that CubeSats can't be turned on when the launch vehicle or when they're inside the launch vehicle. And once they're in LEO, you have to wait 45 minutes before you can begin to transmit. But how are these enforced? Mm-hmm. And that just comes down to paperwork. Um, you can do a day in the life I'm test. I'm already writing another Mission Impossible <laughs> script in my head. Mm-hmm. You, you can just do a day in the life test um, and then get a write off that says, yeah, like, yeah, this CubeSat's behaving properly. And that, that's kind of it as far as policing goes. So he, he does an attack breakdown and uh, the setup is basically like stage one. Uh, you have a CubeSat, it's behaving normally. Looks totally proper. It's just sitting there on the spacecraft waiting to go. Follows all the rules, supposedly. Like, it's not turned on or anything. At stage two is the moment the separation occurs when the peapod shoots it out into space. You know, they kind of just slide out into space and start floating away. Except this CubeSat begins to broadcast immediately to interfere with the GPS of the rocket. And as we know, rockets are dangerous. 
Um, yes. There's a lot of safety mechanisms because a rocket could potentially hurt a lot of people or start World War III. And so there's always someone there that has the capability of blowing up the rocket if it starts going off course. But nowadays, um, that has kind of de facto more to the autonomous flight termination systems, the AFTS. And those use GPS accelerometer data and other stuff to decide, should I blow this thing up? So when you launch a CubeSat and it slowly drifts away, um, you got a good chunk of proximity advantage, uh, as he says, to you know basically broadcasting your GPS data to the satellite. Yeah. So uh, Pever did the math. Um, he used FreeFlyer and mapped it out to show how long you'd have and your space uh, or your free space path loss. Uh, what it would be in relation to the actual good GPS signal coming, it, it's it's pretty significant. And yeah, like you know, you could disrupt it to the point where the AFTS basically decided, "I need to blow this thing up." Huh? Sorry, still writing that script. It's like okay, <laughs> if I have two satellites, one that is my crazy payload, one that is my make the rocket blow up payload. Mm -hmm. What could I do with that? Right. And how can I get Tom Cruise to run on camera? Because yeah. like, if you're going to do a Mission Impossible script, Tom Cruise will be in it, and Tom Cruise has to run. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> so that, that was one half of his talk. The other portion of his talk focused on signal hijacking. Mm -hmm. And so broadcast satellites work mostly in the same manner across the board. Uh, you have a ground station, a uh, physical building, a van, you know, something that's just uh, pointed up to a satellite, transmits the transponder on a specific frequency. Um, that hits the satellite, then it gets sent down to customers from the satellite on a different frequency. Transponders are very dumb and basically just a bent pipe. Mm -hmm. So what does enough power look like in order to hijack that signal and use the bent pipe for your own means? Mm -hmm. And Pepper went into um, setting up a model to simulate all the ways of doing this um, with a very cool tool. Um, it was, he said that in his talk, it was on his GitHub page, I could not find it. Mm. But I did find a signal jammer kind of calculator at the Department of Defense GitHub page. Um, <laughs> if, you, if you look up DEF CON 30. Because of course they do. They yeah, exactly. If you, if you look up DEF CON 30 um, and this talk specifically, it's on YouTube, it's on the DEF CON channel. Um, he can show it and you know, it's a really cool tool. You can select which satellite you want to basically attack. Um, and then put your, you know, legit ground station somewhere and your, you know, baddie, baddie ground station somewhere else and see how much power it would take to kind of, you know, take it over. And so his first one in his example, he used Viasat 2, mm -hmm. which is uh, 30,000 kilometers away in geosynchronous orbit. Mm -hmm. And so at the same distance away from the satellite, you need probably like a very, very strong signal. Um, obviously as strong as the legit source that you're trying to like overpower, you know, you're yeah. So not not too likely. But if you look at Leo, though, like in his slide, he, sh he shows Aqua, which is part of the Aqua Aura uh, terror uh, group there. Mm -hmm. And he puts his attacker in Michigan with a legit broadcaster being in Florida. And at around 1.75 dB, uh, you can begin to degrade the signal to the satellite as it gets closer uh, to your geographical advantage. Um, obviously, as it moves away, from you, you know, it moves closer to Florida, the signal's gonna, you know, yeah. you're gonna lose that. But, you know, that's a significant amount of time that you can just degrade the signal to basically nothingness. Mm -hmm. And there is the protocol side of things. Pever set up something on GNU radio uh, using flow graphs to generate mm -hmm. the signals. 
Um, he was using DVB-S2, which is a digital broadcasting for satellite. It's a pretty common standard. Mm-hmm. And this allowed him to have a legit signal and his false signal and compare, you know, what was going on. And he showed that like flowchart and his slides. Really, really cool. You can do a visualization of the signal output and the degrade, uh, degradation of the signal. And once you ramp it fully up, you have uh, four neat, nice, neat dots, um, but it's the wrong content. Like kind of shows the visualization of, you know, like when it's a good signal, you have like this constellation of four dots. It's good when you've degraded it and jamming it, you know, there's dots all over the place. And right. when you hijack it, obviously it goes back to the four good ones. It's just, you know, the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. So each example that he showed in this talk, he saved it to a file on a system and then used a tool named TSDuck, which is an open source tool for MPEG transport streams. Mm-hmm. And so he could grab each one, pipe to VLC and show the videos. Um, the first one, the legit signal was just, you know, feed from the ISS. Mm-hmm. The second one showed the ISS feed for like maybe two seconds. And then basically VLC crashed because it couldn't decode what was going on. And the third one shows the legit ISS feed for two seconds and then just cuts to a video of a cat. Oh, no. So there's degrade and then there's hijacking. Yep, exactly. Yeah, so it's very, very cool. Very, like, kind of, like, simplistic in nature to show that going on. Um, And so they're, you know, very basic ideas of jamming. It's nothing too weird. Um, There are other jamming techniques of sending pulses um, or other methods to lower use lower power signals to be able to jam things. Yeah. That's kind of where I was going, yeah. So towards the end of his talk, he kind of touches on the defense side of things. Um, you know, you have frequency hopping. So the attacker is always one step behind the frequency that you're picking to use. However, setting up that pattern can be pretty difficult. And you mm-hmm. also obviously might not be able to do that with a satellite that's already in orbit if it can't support that. Inherent in everything that we might come up with, that's kind of the big problem, is that there's a lot of stuff that's in orbit that even if you could adapt the hardware to it, the chances that anybody does is probably pretty low. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, at the ground station level, is there any way to set up something that we could detect pirated signals? There's a several thoughts that I have. One is that for digital signals, we, like we have the technology and on modern hardware, it's even not a big load to do some kind of digital signature, you know, randomly generate a non-sinicide sideband and then a digital signature. Or I'm sure somebody who's more uh, at home with crypto cryptography could, uh, could figure out a way of using a stream cipher as kind of a side channel for that, for that kind of thing. So you have kind of a continuous checksum mechanism going on. And then... The FCC is extremely adept at making sure people don't mess with broadcast radio waves. Yes. Not everything that they do is public, but I have reason to know that they are very good at it. (laughs) Uh, Not personal experience, but I've known people that have gotten visits by the FCC. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyway, the problem here is that in those instances, you're talking about broadcast strength the people that you're trying to hit are regular radio listeners in this case you can use a more directed and or lower power signal in order to do this um because i'm i would expect that the techniques that they use are probably related to doppler analysis based on a large number of ground stations Mm -hmm. and that 
if you're using a highly directional antenna to a satellite, you could potentially bleed a lot less to those ground stations. And those techniques may not be as strong than if you used an omnidirectional uh, broadcast. Right, right. Yeah. So I'm just spitballing. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm hearing you talk and, and 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 I didn't go to that same talk as you and I hadn't really thought through this stuff. So I'm talking about the the, the Mission Impossible script because you know for the last couple of DEF CONs, I've, got, I've kind of tried to start outlining a movie script based on the, <laughs> the talks that we had gone to it's like mm-hmm. this and this and this is how that plot line would go and this is how we can incorporate that and i'm and I, like i i would already been rolling on this had i gone to this talk yeah and beyond the um like that defense side of things like also like policies and norms like you know what are mm-hmm. the policies and norms that we want to have when it comes to how you communicate with spacecraft mm-hmm. or like in the question of like the jamming like should a country be allowed to jam a satellite of a different country as it like flies over them? Yes. Well, no. You, well, you were just talking about that. And one of the things that I did at DEF CON 30 might've been at the same time as this, there was a workshop uh, about more or less what the cyber warfare rules of engagement kind of thing, uh, that what that kind of thing should look like. Mm-hmm. And we had a discussion about a lot of things, but, and I think I've mentioned it before. Like I, one of the points that I know that I made was, uh, essentially what's the difference between somebody taking a cyber warfare type attack against a cre- the credit system and what if russia did that in response to being sanctioned off of the swift system because what's the difference between a cyber attack and a sanction in terms of response um by the same token just because it's not using ips it is essentially the physical layer to a lot of telecommunications right right yeah so it's like, is this kind of thing off limits to the same kind of cyber war? Should that should that be in the same kind of rules of engagement? So that's that's where my head went when you when you were talking about that because the rules of international norms sometimes they're effective, like within the World Trade Organization. Right. People abide by the decisions of the World Trade Court uh, because it is instrumental in all of the other um, advantages of being part of the world trade organization. But when you have a sanctioned or even pariah country, what are you going to do? Right. Yeah, exactly. And so the few main takeaways from Hover during this talk was that space is physical and hostile. Mm -hmm. You know, we build satellites in order to protect them from space, basically go figure. Yeah. But that comes with inherent cybersecurity risks, like the transponder. The transponder is built, you know, in a specific way. So, you know, the heat of the sun, everything in space, you know, can Mm -hmm. monkey with it. You know, it's dumb, it's analog. But because of that, you know, like you said, it's a vent pipe. Mm -hmm. The space cybersecurity isn't new. It's been going on for decades. Um, This is, you know, the thing that's constantly going on, but it's being ramped up. Well, I mean, an essential problem with, and I think we've talked about this before, is that everything in aerospace takes years before it's considered spaceworthy. So you have this really long, at least relative to the to the rest of tech, lag between when you decide to do a thing and when it gets fully vetted and ready to go up in space. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And because everything is so designed to capability, the ability to retrofit things is almost not there. No, yeah, yeah, especially for any, any custom job. Like, right. I mean, half this time, the the flight software is picked at the start 
like mm-hmm. at the onset. Yeah. And then yeah. five years before launch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like I've run into the issue of like we picked Cosmos and we tested it, it worked, but we tested it on, you know, like CentOS seven systems or CentOS six systems yeah. at the time or whatever. It's like, okay, cool. Well, we, we can't use CentOS anymore. Does, does <laughs> yeah. this work on Debian? Does this work on like, you know, um Oracle Linux? Hell. Like Yeah. Red Hat a Red Hat Enterprise or uh, because you go through a couple of generations of that. Maybe the libraries you depend on aren't there, or they've gone to, uh, they've advanced too far to use all the functions that were originally put into the libraries. Yeah, I've, I've run into that issue a lot of just like, hey, we can't use that library. Um, like we know it's updated, but we just can't support it. Like, sorry. Yeah. And his third takeaway was that space just needs more security researchers. Honestly, we go back to the previous points and. There's good reason why there aren't a lot of folks in there. <laughs> it moves really slow. Mm. People are going to gravitate towards other places. And I know from the stuff that you said about some of the NASA mission stuff, they're not built to have an expert on this kind of signal stuff. No. On a mission. Like the more you talk about it, the more I'm like, I, I'm seeing like, we need to design a, a comprehensive system like that is extensible and is fundamentally sound get it done and get it right the first time because you will not have like the adoption problem that we always talk about it's going to be five times as bad here as it is anywhere else if you don't do it right the first time your ability to correct it will be almost non-existent yeah exactly yeah but anyways i will end this with a quote from pever mm. We basically just said uh, the main point of his talk is that if you shout loud enough and in the right way, people will have no choice but to hear you. Fair enough. Find out about new episodes at r slash hacking the Gibson on Reddit and support the podcast by contributing at the Wikimedia Foundation or Electronic Frontier Foundation.